Hello, world. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. 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 Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> hey, hey, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, welcome. I am so glad you're here doing this live thing with me. So this week's conversation was actually recorded almost a year ago crazy, right? Time, time, where does it go? But what I found really fascinating about listening back to this conversation with Mel Jones, the very multi-talented producer and director, is how much of this conversation is still very relevant and applicable to today. It's funny, at the time she reflected on what her life would look like if she could just slow down. And yet here we are. COVID has forced us all to do just that in many ways. So Mel graduated from Howard University and got her MFA in producing at AFI. She spent eight years working alongside the legendary producer Stephanie Elaine, whom was also a guest on the show, so check out episode 14 if you have not yet heard that. She shares her journey on growing from an assistant to a producer at Homegrown Entertainment. She dives deep into how she became an associate producer on Justin Simeon's Sundance hit, Dear White People, and divulges her secret to being a freaking ray of sunshine. (laughs) I really enjoyed this conversation. I can't believe it's been a year. If you like the show, please tell a friend, tag a friend, like, subscribe, wherever it is you get your podcast. And without further ado, let's hear from Mel. Yeah, that's that's some that's some real stuff right there. <laughs> um, okay, so tell me everything about you. Okay, you know, your origin story. Yeah, walk me through everything that's happened to get to this moment on okay. Kaka's couch. Okay. <laughs> like, give me a second. I'm going to try to do this on the first try. Uh, okay. So, born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. Which, I want to interrupt. I won't count this out of your five okay, minutes. Okay, thank you. Because we were talking about this off mic, and I just love that you're from there. Mm-hmm. Because when I came to America, that's where I lived. Yeah. In Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, and Henrico County. What, what? Me too. Yeah. So, I just love that. Because you don't meet a lot of people from Richmond. No. So. Not so, from Richmond. Yeah. At all. Where were you coming from? Brazil. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you can samba? I can samba, yes. I love samba. I love, I love Brazilian culture. I mean, obviously, I'm partial because I'm Brazilian, but... <laughs> You know, not, I mean, it's like not everybody's into all the things that are mm-hmm. the sort of stereotypical interest of a culture, mm-hmm. and, but I really am. I love samba. I love dance. I love, yeah. you the know, food. the food. The and it's interesting because so much of it is rooted in African culture. Yeah. Different conversation for a different time. Yeah. But, but it's, and when I came to America and I discovered like the African American culture, yeah. that was the first thing that I identified of with. Of course, because I mean, I mean, if you think about religion, you know, yeah. it's the, it comes from that African religion. So even how you, even how you interact with religion, call yeah. and response, all that stuff, same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, slavery ended very late in Brazil. Yeah. Same thing like here. Like yep. it's a lot of things that make us, and then, you know, the dance, the like you yeah. guys have, um. Capoeira, like Capoeira, yeah. I mean, a lot of it. All of the best things about Brazil, I would say, are Angola, right? are African. So yeah. So um, anyway, there here we go. go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Yeah. yeah I love it. So Richmond, Virginia. Oh yeah, the me. It's my turn now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> I am a daughter of a, a preacher and a teacher. I went to Howard University, Bison. What what? Um, and came out here to go to AFI as a producing fellow. I knew I wanted to be a storyteller because my dad was a preacher. And I was like, what he's doing is fire, but I'm not about to be a preacher, right? <laughs> like how you inspire people, how you can heal people, how you can do all those things. Yeah. 
through storytelling, that's why I'm here, right? So I could probably change jobs today and do something else as long as it was like story oriented. I wanted to be a photojournalist. I wanted to travel the world and do travel essays and stuff, right? And eat food and like have a good time. Yeah. That was the plan. That's a great dream. That's my dream too. Right. And so (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's what I want to do. And I knew that in college, but my university did not want me to, to double major in photography and journalism. They were in separate schools and it was too hard and they said I couldn't do it. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? And what does a producer do? If there's a problem, you solve it. So I go, oh, documentary film. That's in the school to see where journalism is. I'll just do that. And so I ended up doing documentary film and that's what I got my degree in. And it kind of just naturally moved into like, you know, narrative features that were fictional. So when you were, you were like, okay, AFI has this program and I'm sure you looked at USC and all the others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What made you choose AFI? Um, I think because like prior, I knew that I wanted to be a storyteller first. So I thought I wanted to be a DP mm. in the very beginning. And then I realized that they had to report to someone, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, man, I don't want to do that. And so I thought who, you know, who is the boss, right? And it's usually a producer or a director. Mm-hmm. And I had directed some stuff um, in undergrad, like in theater, and I liked it, but it was it just felt really male dominant, I think. And I thought, and also all the producers were always women. They were always like the badass ladies, like getting everybody, you know, in line. Like that's generally how it was. And I ended up producing a film for a friend of mine who was a dude and um really liked it and so once i had done that i was working at like the discovery channel as a tape librarian and i was like this is not going to be my life like it's not <laughs> going to be my life and so i after doing that project with him and like i got to do i got to order equipment and i got to like hear about what the dps were doing and i got to talk to like the production designer and hear what the production designer was doing. And I got to figure out like what about the script wasn't working or wasn't going to be feasible because our budget wouldn't mm. allow for it. I got to do all of those things that I found to be interesting and in one job. And like after having that experience of, of producing a short, because before that it was documentary stuff. Right. It's um, different. I was yeah. like, this is, this gets, I could do everything and I get to do, be with it forever. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like as a DP, you shoot it and then you go home and you come back, maybe color it, you know? And like, Everybody comes in in stages and leaves, but like you could be with it the whole time. And I think that was like what made me want to do it. And so I chose AFI because it was, it is a school that is a conservatory. You learn the craft of the one particular thing you came there to do. And so define a producer. Uh, It's the person that makes shit happen. All <laughs> the shit happen. Usually when I describe a producer, I would say a producer is like the mama of the of the movie like the director's like the dad and the producer's like the mom and you know like the mom a lot of times gives birth to the baby in terms of maybe develop the script ahead of time before even finding a director um you know found the money like makes it grow into a thing that will be a thing and then also has to you know for a lot of times in a lot of relationships and obviously there's some relationships there's no dad but like you know and like heterosexual relationship you have the dad that's usually like fun and you know everybody likes to be around them (laughs) and like they get to be do the fun stuff and like everybody you know like get all the praise like oh you you're the best dad ever because you're doing things that moms always do you know like that's kind of the thing (laughs) and then as a producer like as the mom you're the one that has to say no and you're the one that has to discipline and 
You're the one that has to like keep this train going on the track. You know, mm. like if you got an ADHD kid, you got to make sure the services come in or like you have to kind of work <laughs> whatever the problem is you need to solve. Right. Yeah. So like I think that's how I look at it, like the mom of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Great response. I'm curious how your perceptions of what you thought maybe producing was going to be like before you were doing it full time and how they are different from what you thought they were like how many years into your journey are you now like mm, i've been here for 11 years okay so mm-hmm. you're all, you're an og like me <laughs> right. so you know like when you came here and you yeah. had like mm-hmm. afi stars in your eyes you right. know and then oh you God. went through the program and you had a whole perception or idea in mm-hmm. your mind of what you thought that path or that lifestyle was going to be and here you are 11 years later mm-hmm. talk about that, that. yeah well you know it's interesting because i had and I, you know, like I, I don't fault her and I'm not upset, but like I had a producing teacher who told me you're such a great producer. I don't know if you should focus on only telling stories about people of color because you won't make money that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being like, damn, like, well, who's going who's gonna to tell the story? Then? Right. You know, but did you set out to be like, I'm going to only tell yeah, stories Yeah, I wanted of color. to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because like, again, like the reason why I came into it was like, because I do see stories as like a vehicle for healing and for change and for connection. And so especially being a woman and being a woman of color, there's a lot of disconnect uh, by the way that we're seen and the way that we see ourselves. And somehow sometimes we can see ourselves the way that we're seen. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it was really important for me to like delve into that and to tell those types of stories. And that's particularly why I've made mostly independent films up until this point. And they don't make a lot of money and they're really hard. But I did, I feel like those films made a difference culturally. And that's what the payment was for me. So back then, like 11 years ago, being black wasn't cool on film. Like, you know, now it's like all the wave. Right. But then it wasn't. Um, and I think that conversation prepared me a lot for what I would come to experience, you know, in my first few years out here, just trying to get my footing after finishing AFI, just how do I do the thing I want to do when it's not like the coolest thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and what do I have to sacrifice or how do I, how do I figure that thing out? And I think some people just get incredibly lucky. Like they happen. And you know, I think luck is being prepared and, and being at the right place at the right time. The Oprah quote. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's true. You know? Mm-hmm. And like, I just so happened to uh, be a part of a mentorship program where the producer who was my mentor was Stephanie Lane. Mm. just real quick can you let the audience know who she is and why that's a big deal that's a big deal that is a big deal because (laughs) stephanie elaine is um like the original you know black woman producer you know Mm -hmm. and like the original badass in general so she she produced boys in the hood she's done movies like black snake moan she's done hustle and flow um something new and the list goes on and on we've done together dear right white people um, the we did Burning Sands that went to um, Sundance and was like the fir- one of the first class of Netflix originals and a couple other titles and so everybody knows her and she's a legend right. you know like people people kiss the ring right? yeah and I would say that she's a legend not just within sort of like the African American community she's yeah. someone that on a global scale yeah. like everybody knows her name yeah like it's yeah. not just she's in the black world and people she's a black producer she's right. a producer and she um uses her platform to talk about a lot of the things that i care about um mm-hmm. and so 
when she became my mentor, I became fortunate enough to be able to do what I wanted to do right off the jump, basically. Mm. You know, like I had one year stint working at Participant Media, which again is a company around social issues and all that stuff. Not as much about race, if I mean, if you count the help, but like, <laughs> um, but you know. Sorry, I like snorted. <laughs> But you know, like, so you guys got to see her face. I wish I had that recorded. <laughs> no, no, you need to get a video camera. I, I gotta start doing that. Um, but like, you know, they were also just about talking about things that were yeah. important. You know, and I just that's what I wanted to use media for. You know, and so I did that for a year. But my boss like left slash got fired. I have no idea what happened to her. She disappeared from the industry. Whoa! And you usually go with your boss to the next place, but she went into obscurity, and so I didn't have a job. You know, mm. and I didn't have anything. And um, Stephanie called one day to be like, hey, would you work with me for the LA Film Festival? And so I was able to, by day, work um, at the film festival where I learned a lot about, in the same way that like I learned at AFI, because at AFI there were 150 of us and there were four Black people in my class, right? Um, and I learned like, oh, this is going to be a thing. You know, like this is, you know, where we would get questions like, why do you guys all sit together? Or we would be like, well, there's no faculty like that is of color here, you know? And they're like, well, what's the problem with that? You know? And now since then they've, they've right. obviously changed, but um, I think like going through that and then being at a festival too, and seeing how people look at work that is not a part of their experience mm. and looking at like, the dynamics that are in a room when you're choosing and not seeing yourself represented. And then, then now understanding why festivals may not play a bunch of films of diverse backgrounds made by people of diverse backgrounds. It's mostly because that's not who's choosing the film. Right. Um, and so I learned like, okay, if that's happening on the festival and that's how you discover all your filmmakers, right? That's how you, if that's happening on the film festival circuit, then that's what's also happening in Hollywood, mm. right? Because so, they're getting fed these people from the festival. Those They're the gatekeepers, right? But then right. also like the agents and the managers and all these people. And the buyers. And the buyers and everybody. Yep. We're all kind of being fed through this system that isn't very diverse. Yeah. It's supposed to be so indie, but it's only kind of specific to um, particular groups. So I think working with Stephanie at the film festival while like moonlighting us producers together, because like, Film independent was paying our bills, right? Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she had been chilling, like she'd done her thing. She um was home in her garden, like living her best life, <laughs> you know, before Film Independent called her and said, Would you be the head of the festival? So she wasn't really as active either. And so both of us were like, Okay, like now we're here. She has this stage, like all these people are calling her, they know her. Um, and so we were able to kind of leverage our relationships with some of those change the festival and I think in a great way. Yeah. Then it died after we left. But Yeah, like what's happening with the festival? It's gone. It's it ended, right? Yeah, it died. They stopped doing it. They just stopped doing it. You know, I'm not privy to any of the insider That's stuff anymore because I'm not crazy. There anymore, but, but yeah, it it definitely left the building. Which is sad, you know, because we don't have any big kind of festival in Los Angeles. Which anymore. is ridiculous. Yeah. It's making way for something new to yeah, be created. True, you true. Know, something else better and probably just more of the times will yeah. step in its place. But yeah, for now it's Dang. So some of the um, criticism around it was that while we were there, it skewed away from quote unquote good films or critically acclaimed films and played, you know, diverse films that were mm. um, diverse for the sake of being diverse, but subpar. Like those were some of the criticisms that would come, which is, which are really like interesting conversations to have because when you're looking at, um, you know, even even in 
even in Hollywood, if I'm making a film, a love movie, two people, whatever, and I'm asking for a budget, I'm not going to get the same money that it's going to be if it's like a white dude and a white girl. Mm-hmm. And so that changes like the production value that changes some right. of what it becomes, you know? Yeah. So there, there's a question around resources and how we, how we even look at a film and judge it. Um, and, and what, what is most important about a movie that I think has to be taken into account in all the time when you're looking at a film right. that's given less resources that happens on a studio level. And yeah. it happens on a straight up, I'm asking my mom and dad, this is what my, you know, generational wealth looks like picture as well. So, I mean, that was a long digression. I don't even remember the question. <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> no, it's good. We went to an important place. We were talking about why Stephanie Elaine is a big deal. Right. And then I went down this whole thing about this festival. And, stuff. and the festival, which, you know, she was connected to that and how you connected with her and the luck involved in that. Yeah, totally. Because I got out here in 08, right? And that was like the writer's strike. And then tw- 2010 was the recession. So one of the things that I did was I was going to line produce stuff for people, right? Mm-hmm. Because I had that skill from learning it at AFI. So that was go- probably going to be the path that I would have gone down, mm. um, which wasn't exactly what I would have imagined. Because, you know, when we were in school, they were like, you become an assistant to a producer, then become a producer. The end. Like, that's what wow. they said you do, right? So <laughs> I was like, okay. That's a lie. Yeah, and that's I mean, such not a, a lie. But no, it's- but it, it's not true at all. I, that happened with me. But that don't really happen. And it really doesn't happen because there's so much competition and like mentorship is not always like part of someone's personal kind of identity and Mm. what they choose to do with their time. It's also like when someone sees you in a certain light, it's very hard for them to move outside of that and see you differently. So if you've been giving giving them coffee and taking their phone calls, it's really hard for them to see the value in you as a CE or a producer right. later on until you leave and come back. That's usually what happens. Right. They need to reset. Validated like, by somebody else. Yeah. Then you come back and then they hire you at a higher And position. then they'll be like, I was the one who found exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> but they don't usually, they don't normally Normally, like you don't go from that person who taught you how to do everything and they think that you need all this help and people aren't checking for your growth. I think it's just that it's like when you can deliver and do a thing that makes their lives easier, why are they going to promote you? It's not even necessarily malicious. I think it's just it's selfish in that perspective of like it's so hard to train someone and get someone who's got mm-hmm. like the, the energy yeah. for it. So when you find someone, you're going to keep them right you're there. You're going to keep them right there. It's a really weird business that's so relational based, which is why like every path is so freaking unique because it's it all depends of, on who you meet. It's yeah. It's when like, you meet them, how you meet them. Exactly. Because I have met people in certain circumstances and they don't even remember that they've met me. Mm-hmm. And then when they meet me in another circumstance, they're like, oh my God, it's so great to be. And they, they remember me from that instance. Yeah. You know, and it's really it's like about the whole amalgamation of like how anything comes to be determines how someone feels about you, what they think, how they regard you. Like if they meet you on a red carpet, that's one thing. If they meet you at a coffee shop, there's another thing. If they meet you as an assistant, it's one thing is if they meet you as a producer, it's another thing. Because that was a dichotomy I dealt with, like working with Stephanie. I was her assistant at the LA Film Festival, I was her producing partner by the end. At you know what I mean? Yeah. At Homegrown. So depending on how someone met me, that would be how much they valued their experience with me. Right. You know what I mean? Like my relationship with Stephanie is like a a great example of that. So I'm part of this program called Project Involved at Film Independent. Mm-hmm. People who don't know about it, they should look it up. It's a great resource for women and people of color and LGBT 
LGBTQIA plus people <laughs> and everybody. So like anybody who doesn't really have a, a, a really strong voice in the industry has an opportunity to make a movie and get a mentor. So I asked for her knowing that she was a part of the board and that she'd be easy to get to. Um, and because I knew that she was awesome. Right. So I was like, she's awesome. They're, they're not going to spend, you know, six months trying to get the assistant to respond. And I could like learn something from this woman. So she does, you know, coincidentally enough, again, Todd, like who I didn't know this was going to happen. She was asked to deliver the welcoming speech to the class, mm-hmm. like to our class of um, fellows. So I'd already asked them, could she be my mentor before they had decided to invite her? And so they were like, let's just corner her at this thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I'm like, yes, you know, great idea. <laughs> so we we corner her at the thing, and I, I mean, anybody who knows Stephanie, she can have like this face where, like, people are scared of her. Like, they'll yeah. be like, oh. she's got a good poker face. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. met her. Like, yeah, at Sundance, and it's she's she can be real. Yeah, like people really, you know, are like, oh, you know, like, you know, how is she? You know, I'm like, she's fine. You know, like, but her she can just turn it off, right? And so we come up to her and poker faces on. They want something. She knows it, you know. So she's like, Mm-mm. guards are up. <laughs> and so she's like, I'm like, they're like, this is Mel. She asked for you to be a producer, be her um producing mentor. Can you do it? Do you have time? She's like, yeah, fine, okay, sure. Like, I'll be your mentor. So basically. The real what you really get out of mentorship is like two meetings and maybe a phone call, you know, mm. like at the very least, like that's what they're signing up for. And that's what a lot of people got two meetings and a phone call. Um, and then if you're able to build a relationship, that's great. But that's not always, you know, everybody doesn't match up like that. So that's what it seemed like it was going to be on that day. Like I was going to talk to her two times <laughs> on the phone. Like I probably wasn't ever going to see her again. in person. Yeah. Yeah. But we ended up on the um, elevator together. And again, it was like so awkward. She did not want to say anything to me. And it was just the two of us. And we went our separate ways. But she gave me her email on the elevator. So I made another short for a friend of mine who was at Columbia College that I loved. And it came out so well. It's called A Christmas Tree. And so I sent her the Christmas tree because I felt like, okay, well, I'll send her something so she knows I'm not like lame. Just chilling. Yeah, yeah. you know yeah, what I mean? You're doing like, the work. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on stuff. And I did this on my own. Like it wasn't for a project. I didn't get any like credit. Like nobody at school made me do it. And so um, then she emailed me, come over to my house. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it went from, yeah, maybe you'll get a phone call. See you later, sucker. To, yeah. you know, oh, you're actually a producer. And like you made a, a film that was good. And mm. I see something come over you know and that's like what started our relationship and just by doing that and showing her that like you can and this is something she taught me later like I don't even know that that was my process but what she taught me later and which is what I demonstrated without knowing I was demonstrating like you can talk to me or not I'm gonna be doing stuff right that's how we go into every room when we pitch stuff like that's how we approach every situation it's gonna happen whether you are a part of it or not Right. So you want to jump on this train, you know? Right. And I think that's what, like, I was like, here, this is what I'm doing. And so speaking to, like, how you meet people, how people relate to you based on when and how you meet them. Yeah. Like, I was a thirsty, you know, fellow in one second, and I was a producer in another. Yeah, but know? I think to your point, like, a lot of what I've built for myself as a producer, I didn't go to AFI, I didn't go to school for it, I just kind of found my way, was a lot of, not, like, cornering someone necessarily but cold emailing people finding the people that I responded to whose work I connected with that I wanted to learn from and finding unique ways to get to them mm-hmm. um 
And I think it's so important because I get a lot of like these cold emails. And now that I'm not like on the other side by any means, I'm still like trying to find my way. But like, there's a perception of me that's different because I've, you know, produced things. I got credits. I've produced things. I got an Emmy nomination. So people look at me and they think like, I must have some secret answer, right? Mm -hmm. But people will spend a lot of time emailing you, but they are just asking for something yeah right there's no give and Mm -mm. so to me i think the difference in it to sort of parallel with Mm -hmm. what you're saying is to email someone or find a contact for someone which Mm -hmm. now you can do online Mm -hmm. right so easy and say hey you should know me you should meet me and it's like well why right Mm -hmm. and just to say you're like a hungry person who wants to learn or shadow someone or take them out for coffee isn't enough it's like be doing you mm-hmm. go do the work mm-hmm. even if it's crappy be doing stuff <laughs> yeah and then you have something to send those people so you can say hey i'm a fan of your work this is why i want to meet you here's stuff i've done that i think is in the vein of the stuff you produce or the stuff you create and i want to talk about that and i want to talk about that right and even if they don't respond today maybe a year later there's something else two years later there's yeah, something else and then when they go look at your they look your name up in their in their gmail search bar they'll be like oh, oh this that person emailed she's been emailing me right. since 2009 exactly <laughs> you know what i'm saying uh-huh. so i think it's so important that if you're gonna like advocate for yourself mm-hmm. then truly have something you bring to the table oh. or to pick their brain one thing um that stephanie says is like i need my brain yeah, don't, I pick, don't it. Want you to pick it. I mean, it's part of why, like, personally, these conversations are selfishly very interesting. But I hope that by getting to learn your story, mm-hmm. other people can feel like they're picking your brain through through this conversation, right, even right. though they don't get to be in the room and ask you the questions. Like, I mean, that I think that's what podcasts are about. Are yeah. about in general, you know. I think because like I could do this for two hours, right? Yeah, and then I could go home to my kid. I cannot meet with every person for two hours. That has no. <laughs> That's why I'm the lucky one. Thank you so much. You know what I mean? Like for doing this so that I can help. Because I remember I did. Okay. This is like, I talk a lot, but (laughs) like on Instagram, I had did, I had somehow gotten on a visa commercial, right? Friend of mine who's a producer, because I know a lot of producers, she's a commercial producer and she named Kate Rogan and she, who you should probably talk to. I'd love to talk to her. Yeah. And so she called me and said, Hey, visa's doing these commercials. They need some diversity. You know what I'm saying? Don't, you know, go in there. Like behind the scenes. No. Diversity. Oh, on, on camera. camera. Okay. They wanted to talk to women who were in the film industry. Oh, I saw this commercial when you I looked you that? up. Yep, yep, yep. And so, so they're like, you know, come in. And so I'm in there. It's like all white women, right? I'm the only one. And everybody's like, you know, this is my second interview, you know, second, you know, audition. And I'm like, eh. y'all know I'm going to get it right. Like I just knew it. And they were like, <laughs> You're such an asshole. I was like, it's not my fault they don't know any black people, you know what I mean? But like, we're like, and we get, had like a good laugh out of it. And the truth was that was what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were like the casting company just didn't have it together enough yeah. to find the right people. And so, um, but the whole point was when I got up there, I had said like, I really do like to give people opportunities. Like that's why I like to be a producer. Part of what drives me, apart from like what it does on the outside, like socially, like mm-hmm. and on the big kind of macro scale, is that on the micro scale, I can give somebody their first job. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Who yeah. is totally prepared and totally able and totally gonna kick ass, but nobody sees them. They don't even see them. Not even sees that they're worth it. Not they just don't see them. Right. They so, you know, and so like that's a big deal. And I pride myself on being able to do that. So I said that. On a daggone visa commercial. Do you know my Instagram was lit up? <laughs> like everybody was caught. Do you see me now? Yeah. Do you see Do me? Do you see me? 
me. I need a job. I need a job. Can you help me? And I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? And I eat like, I think I got back to every single person, you know, like I didn't give everybody a job. I connected some people to other people. I thought that would be more helpful for like what Mm. they were doing. And, but it was like, uh-oh. You know what I mean? They were like, oh, you said it, so I'm here. Put it out there, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, I mean, and it is one of those things where I was like, I didn't mean it like that. You know what I mean? Like, I meant it like, you, you know, I know you, and I know, and I see you as a PA, and I'm going to give you a job as a coordinator. Yeah. I didn't mean like, like, like off Instagram, I'm just going to play, like, I'm like, a, like, I'm a temp agency. Look, look it's you not. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> okay, let's talk about Dear White People, mm-hmm. because... Your title is associate producer. Mm -hmm. And just for the listeners, can you explain what what that that means in the context of an independent film such as Dear White People, which if you haven't seen the original movie, Mm. I highly recommend. It was, I was, I've only been to Sundance once. Mm -hmm. I just really wanted to go to Sundance and wanted an excuse. And I actually, fun story, I volunteered and on the opening night, I was part of the opening night film that year. And and Ava DuVernay at the time was like blowing up, like middle of nowhere had come out a few years ago. This is like 20, gosh, 2014, 2015. And I had known of her and she was like big on the Twitter and we had connected on the Twitter and had Mm -hmm. emailed back and forth, but I never met her. And I was the usher basically putting people in their little seats. And who comes in but Ava and she is there and I'm like, it's Ava. And I don't get starstruck or like verklempt by a lot of people. I've met a lot of people, but Ava for me, even before she was like huge. She well, was she's already. A force. Yeah. She's a force, and mm-hmm. she's an energy, and she's magnetic, mm-hmm. and she's just a yeah. unique person. And so I was like, "Oh my God, there's Ava!" And I was like, I went up to her, and I was like, "Hello," and I will take you to your seat. And yeah. she was like, "Okay." And then when I went to put her in her seat, I was like, "Hey, by the way, I just want to say, like, I'm Carolina. Like, we emailed." She's like, "Carolina Gropa," and she like touched me, yeah. and I was like, "You know my ah. last name?" And I remember feeling like I've made it, Mom. Yeah, like I'm volunteering at Sundance, and Ava DuVernay <laughs> knows my name, right? Yeah. Like, I didn't even have. A film there but all that to say that it was so special to be recognized and then I left that screening and then went to the Dear White People screening mm-hmm. and that film changed the landscape of everything, everything TV, you know, for even, a lot of yeah. people but particularly we had never seen black stories like that before not at all it was so cool to be like sort of uh, arm's length from people like Lena and Justin who mm-hmm. were sort of on the cusp of the, what they, what they became yeah. you know what they've become and mm-hmm. and to know them then and so how i came into uh dear white people is it was it through an afi connect so justin and lena have been working on the script for a while stephanie says that like they had sent a really bad draft of it to her years prior so mm-hmm. she wasn't inclined to read like what they had and i didn't know any of this i just knew i was a new assistant you know and like i wasn't about to give her like set up a meeting with them because i think they had called and they Wanted to have a meeting. I was like, I can't do that unless I know that you know what the script is. So I, so they had been calling. I was like, okay, I'll try. I'll try to get you in with her. But like, we're doing all this stuff in the festival, and my friend simultaneously from AFI called from Sony, and they had their script at Sony, and she was like, they're never gonna do anything with it. Nelly Rafai, she called me. You gotta read this thing though. It's good. So she sends it to me, and I read. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing, right? Yeah. And like. Justin had worked, we had worked together at Participant Media. He was over in like the kind of take part side though. And I was yeah. working on the film development side. Because he was in marketing for a while, wasn't he? Yeah, PR he was a marketing. Publicist. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, 
Angel Lopez. Mm-hmm. I know Angel. Yeah, he was he was like my boss. He was like under my boss, so he was my boss. And so I was like, oh my God, I know these people. You know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is awesome. So I gave the script to Stephanie. And I was like, Stephanie, you, you've got to read this. You have to read this. This is so good. Because I wanted to, I knew they wanted to meet with her. And I wanted to set them up. I was like, you got to read this. So she didn't read it, right? She was just like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. I kept pressing her. Like, I would send it to her every, like, week. She never read it. Then they made, and that's the whole thing about the train is moving. They made their campaign, their Andy Gogo campaign. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we're doing this thing. And people are going to give us money. And, you know, the title, Dear White People, just, you know, it's, caught fire and everybody was like look like what is this thing and so of course her young daughter at the time maybe like not even out of high school yet like 17 or so was like look at this this is awesome and she's like mel have you seen this and i'm like of course i have you have the script in your inbox right and so (laughs) she's like what what you know and she reads the script she's like call him in you know and so we ended up meeting and so there were like all these meetings about how are you gonna make this movie like went to focus went to all these places and finally i think the money came from again julie lebedev who happened to be the assistant before me on jonathan's death Mm. right like no one knew she was a russian princess i mean i didn't know i mean they knew but i didn't know right (laughs) she was just learning you know and like so she funded the movie and we brought on effie because at the same time i became pregnant and, sh- and at the same time, we had another movie that was going to shoot at the exact same time in L.A. called Beyond the Lights, a Gina Prince-Bartha movie. Yeah. So we weren't going to be able to go on set. So we called Effie and Effie, like, you know, handled all she the... She crushed it. Yeah, all yeah, the physical production, figured out how to make that whole thing work, go, yeah. out to, go out to Minnesota and, like, killed it. And they, and they made the movie. And then after that, it was just like, okay, where does it go? And we got it into the L.A. Film Festival, obviously, because we were there. Yeah. And it deserved to be there. But, you know, like... We made sure it had like the biggest like I remember I remember I got a call from Lena and she was like it was something about car Lena has always been Lena right like whether <laughs> yeah. she had like you know everybody knows who she is or not she knew she was the biggest star on the planet right yeah so she was <laughs> like I think that like it was Audi I don't know what car brand it was but car sponsor I don't think was gonna pick her up or whatever it was and she was like. I need, she called me, I need a car, you know? And I was like, all right, we're going to get, we, we're going to get you. We're going to get you a car. She's like, yeah, like this is like huge. Right? But everything she did, she put so much like heart into it. So she's like, this is my, this is my baby. Like I'm getting in this car and I'm getting to this, you know, and this is going <laughs> to yeah. be the thing. And it, I need to get there early. And I just remember being like, all right, we got you. We got you. You're going to get there. We'll find the, find the car. And we had the big premiere. And then le- lo and behold, the TV show, I think like a few months later, came yeah. into being. And it was it was an avalanche of of amazing things. Yeah, but it was like literally again the right time at the right place. My friend Nilly happened to be at Sony. Yeah, she happened to send me this script, yeah. and I happened to read it because you don't always read everything that everybody gives you, especially when it's like not require reading for work. You mm-hmm. know, like you don't usually have time. I was like, let me read this thing because like associate producer means a lot of things. Like some some associate producers damn near like are the AD the crafty person <laughs> like <laughs> they're driving the truck you know like they yeah. feel like every hole that is ever exists on any film um that's some of them you know some associate producers like put five dollars on the, in the movie or whatever right um to give you the extra bump so you can make it and they'll get it like just like with producing credits but for me it was being able to connect them to stephanie and having and moving that train like making sure that she paid attention to it so that it could get 
done you know yeah. being that connective tissue for that time i was making no money at the festival i was making what thirty-five thousand dollars at the festival and i wasn't gonna make any movie money off of this movie and she was like for the work you d- you did you deserve a credit and that's something that like a lot of people don't do mm-hmm. they don't do that you know they're like yeah. well, i'm gonna get you for all your worth and if you're not gonna ask for it i'm not gonna give it to you sometimes you have to ask and you still don't get it yeah and and you have to like beg. Be- basically demand like if you beg you're not gonna get it but if you're like okay i'm leaving because you don't value me maybe mm. you'll get it and maybe you'll have <laughs> to leave you know what i mean like um for me it was a very it changed my trajectory i feel by doing that and having that and being able somebody to write about it or for it to be up somewhere even changed her perception of me by yeah. having that credit you know like what she thought I was an AFI I'm an associate producer I could do that in my dream you know what I right. mean like but, but I was her assistant you know so she had no contextualization around mm. what that meant but but for other people to call me that it even changed how we related mm. because the next movie we made i was a producer on it yeah why because that's the next step right right it never ceases to amaze me how small this and tiny our industry is especially mm-hmm. like the producing side of it mm-hmm. because i don't know if you remember but we had a call last year mm-hmm. you and i mm-hmm. you me and stephanie mm-hmm. for a project yeah for whatever reason i think i wasn't available for yeah, all the dates yeah but it's just you know what i'm saying and like years prior i sort of randomly met stephanie mm-hmm. and i know like all of these people that you sort of tangentially know mm-hmm. you end up crossing paths with time and time again over and over so being a good person a person of integrity mm-hmm. who's gonna show up for others and know your worth and mm-hmm. ask f- and demand mm-hmm. your worth it may be really uncomfortable in those moments mm-hmm. but it goes yeah like if i way. hadn't have said like if i wouldn't have a little bit put, i mean i didn't have to like she said it already so i just was like you said you would yeah i know you know like because everybody has a different idea of like what people's contributions are right well and it raises this cool explanation of how the reason there are so many producer credits and i'll speak specifically of indie film because television's a whole other world is because there are different people who bring different things to the table and get different credits and have to be acknowledged and sometimes unfortunately you know you're giving a credit to like the actor's best friend because they're just on set and they did nothing. But sometimes it's someone who's been trying to move a boulder up the mountain to get the movie to a place where it's greenlit and financed so that you can come in and have a job, you know? So is that person's contribution any less than the the physical production, right? The physical producer who was there every day for 16 hours. It's a different grind. So it's like, I'm not, I never played organized sports, but if you were to think of like a team, Mm -hmm. it's like at some point you got to pass the ball to the next person and you got to put people on your team that are just going to like, when it's their turn to shine, they're going to go, they're going to do it. So, yeah. So, so, but to that point, like Bernie, I think about Bernie Sands because there are four producers on that. Right. By the time we got to that movie, Gerard McMurray, who I love to death, he had taken it. First, Jason Berman got a hold of it, I think, through Sundance because he had met Gerard through Ryan Coogler. Um, and he was like, I'm attaching myself because Jason does know how to find very good work, but he wasn't able to push it. You know, and it, like sometimes it's timing, right? Because it was a movie about hazing, but like at an HBCU and it had already been like, what was it called? The Go or the, it was, mm. it was the basically white version that had just gone to Sundance. Yeah. 
So everyone's like, well, why would anybody? Well, we already have one. Can't have one. Can't, can't have more have than more. one. And yeah. like, does a black one mean more or anything? You yeah, have a white yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many like procedural shows do we need? Right. Right. We got like, a million of them. A million. And people keep. They but you can only up. have one movie about one topic at yeah. a time. It's weird. So that so that was kind of I think the issue too. So he's like trying to do it, trying to do it, trying to do it, and and Gerard's like, I'm I'm a I'm a director. I'm meant to be a director. But I haven't directed my movie yet. You know, that's how he's approaching the world. And he's talking to agents. He's talking to me. He's talking to actors like he's making the movie tomorrow from three years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. So then it gets to Reggie Hudlin. And Reggie's like, I love this. You know, he he made um, House Party. So he's like, okay, this is awesome. This is definitely a different thing. There's not nothing funny about our movie. But it's still about this experience. So he's like, I'm in. You know, what can I do? You know? And so now, now Jason and... Reggie are working together, but they're also very busy people. And this is an indie film, and it it had you know. So he gives it to and like he gives it to all of us, and we know about each other kind of. Um, Stephanie gets it first from Ryan Coogler and gives it to me and says, "You went to an HBC. You tell me if it's good. You know what I mean?" Mm. And I'm like, "This is great. We definitely have to do it." And then we're like trying to set meetings, and we're like, "Wait a minute, you somebody's already gone there?" Because Gerard's just like, "Whoever can do it." I'm just going to go with them, right? And we're Mm -hmm. like, no, okay, let us all talk about what's happening here. And we all got together. Jason had done whatever he'd done. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't, we didn't get the money three years ago and we were, Mm -hmm. there were other things that were probably like casting or whatever, but he kept it alive, at least even if it was just Gerard's hope that the movie got made because there's a producer that believed in it. Like, it was was alive, right? And then Reggie Hudlin also brought, like, a certain validity to it. You know, like, having... He's Reggie Hudlin. And then by the time we got there, with all all four of us now producing this movie, when we took it to Netflix, who had passed on it previously, (laughs) they were like, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like, maybe we should make this movie. And And everybody played very different roles. Like, I was the only one on set. You know, Reggie Hudlin was making a movie of his own. He was making Marshall at the time. Mm. Um, Jason Bourbon hates to be on set, just in general. That's just not his thing. You know, like, he <laughs> likes to make the deals and, like, the thing. But, like, being on set gives him, like, major anxiety. So he was there in his car when he was there. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And so that was, like, what he he did all the contracts and, you know, did the deal with Netflix and kind of dealt with all the kind of nitty-gritty of all the deal. And then Stephanie was producing a TV show with Lionsgate. That happened to have the same dates as we did. Um, and so I was the only one on set. So like, you know, but but I was not going to get that movie made. Like, you know what I mean? Like no one was going to give me that movie to make without those other three names attached. There was no doubt after that movie how important multiple producers are because of the things they bring, even if they're not on set. Every day. Right, right. You know right, what I mean? Right. I wouldn't have been able to get to set every day without all three of them. Yep. You know what I mean? I think that's one thing that, I've been able, especially because at this point I've made five movies, right? So, like, I've been able to look at it. Because, you know, you get kind of irritated when, like, randos get producing credits. And people sometimes, I think, devalue what it is when they give the credits away so easily. Right. I think there's, like, a really, like, fine line. Like, you can't get all precious about it because you need to um, give people recognition for whatever they yeah do, right well it dilutes it dilutes the, the the title of producer which has already been 
sort of taken apart and little pieces sort of sprinkled throughout yeah. a whole process. But I think if you have, like I said, the contributions that make sense and you're an integral part of getting that thing to the point where yeah. someone else can be running that show, then then great. Mm-hmm. But to just give it away, and I get sometimes there's politics and deal points and all of this stuff that's out of our control, but yeah. it just dilutes it and it makes it hard when you know, your parents ask you like, so what, how do you do this again? And why are there 15 of you on this yeah. credit list? And yeah. it's like, well, like my, uh, there's like eight production companies. And it's like, you know, yeah. it gets real. It's like, what did you actually do? Right. Yeah. And you, meanwhile, you're the person that's on set. And, and I, if you're the one on set, you're like, I did everything right, for like, those five months, you know? Right. But the good thing about it though, is like, at least for me is because I, I'm took two films back to Virginia because being a mom, and making movies, you gotta you gotta figure it out. So I called the film office. The reason why I ended up running this show in the first place is because I was like, "All right, dudes, I called the film office in Virginia. They're gonna give us money. And they're gonna give us more money than anybody else gonna give us. And this is where I want to go because my mom lives here, my dad lives here. This is where <laughs> and you get free childcare. Yeah, like this is where we're doing this. And every no one could argue they didn't care. I mean, a lot of times people don't care about you and your kid, but the money money doesn't lie. Right. And so we got you know. The film, Virginia film office is like, yeah, hometown girl, come home. You know, we'll give you the money, and what we and I've done that twice, um, mm-hmm. and that's partly how I've been able to do this is to take the films to Virginia, yeah, and make them there. Well, it takes a village; like no one person does it alone. You and cannot; it's like not said, even possible. It's a, it's a team collaborate. It's, it's a the team most sport. collaborative job, more collaborative than I think. And having directed, right? Because I did direct and, and went to Sundance and all this stuff. Having directed and having produced. Producing is far more collaborative than directing is, and 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 you you need your people skills, you need your like intuition, you need your conflict resolution and management skills so much more profoundly than you need it as a director. You still need it, but like at least for me, and I can't speak for everyone, but for me, that has been my experience. All of those skills are so necessary as a producer. You have to constantly be massaging and tailoring the conversation and the approach to how you're going to ask for what you want from person A and it's different from how you're going to talk to person B. It's a lot of that finesse and that that I think life skill you really only get by doing yeah. and understanding the different sort of personality archetypes and the similarities where some people are this way of operating or seeing things and hearing information and others are this way. And as you do it more, you start to see the patterns, right? Yeah. And while every project is, there's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. It's still so they're different. Complete, they're like kids. That's Completely why I always different. come back. Movies are like kids. You know, they're human beings. Like kids are all human. Right. So they all have like basic functions the same, but they don't use they're not the same person. They have different personalities. They have different challenges that you they have different things that you love about them, different things that annoy you. (laughs) But like they're not the same and like no movie. And I think that's what is also so attractive to me about making movies and about producing movies is that like it's never going to be the same because it just can't be no two people are alike yeah um and that's what's so exciting about it because you never know what you're gonna get yeah so you seem to be a very optimistic happy person yeah so how this happened to you how have you been this way is it just genetic you know i don't know like and this may be tmi i never really maybe like when i was going through like puberty I, i felt depressed but I'd never really felt like real depression before mm. until like 
maybe two months ago. Oh. And I was like, welcome. Thanks, to- dude. It, I mean, <laughs> I feel like it's opened me up to so much more storytelling abilities. Though, really? I still see it as a positive. <laughs> but, like, but it was fucking awful. What like, happened? Well, a lot of things happened. Like, so me and Stephanie split. It wasn't a, neg- a bad split, but I had been with her for eight years. The other part of it was, which is crazy, but, and I tell everybody about it now because before I was so just like frustrated that I wouldn't talk about it. But like, so, my daughter had done one Target ad when she was six months old, okay? You have to get a Coogan account. And for those who don't know what a Coogan account is, it's an account to protect children from their parents who might take their money. In order to get a check, you have to put a percentage of that money. It goes directly there from the employer of your child. You, it never passes into the parents' hands. So we had this account for her for that one thing, never did anything else again. I have these financial advisors. And when I make a movie, they will pay my regular bills for me because it don't happen. So my car will get repossessed. Not because I don't have the money, I'm making a movie. Yeah. But because I'm not paying I'm not paying attention to anything that has You're to do with- You're in the vortex. Yeah, of making uh, with the movie. my life. So I've learned over the course of a few movies that like this is like beneficial. And so they do that. So Bank of America had gotten sued because they were basically- even though the account was to protect children, they were taking huge fees out of the kid's account. So maybe she made $700. Five years later, there was $40 in the account, right? So they get sued and they can't do it anymore. So they change the name of the accounts to personal savings account, right? But they're still Coogan accounts. And when they do that, their system connects the accounts to your online banking. So my financial advisors put my savings, the money for taxes, all the stuff. I was like, I don't want to touch this amount of money. Can you put in my savings? They put it in my child's Coogan account. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know for months because I wasn't touching it. I now realize I don't have like my savings and that at some point the bit of money that I just have in my accounts is going to run out. Right. And like I don't have this money and I call like lawyers and like there's been like it was like a six or seven month thing where I thought I was going to get it out. I never did. It never came out because. It's to protect kids. You have to go through court. Like the Bank of America would not do it because they're like, it's your error, even though they had renamed the account. And like all the lawyers that I called were like, you're never going to see that money again. Like trust attorneys were like, I don't want to take $5,000 more from you. Like that was like everyone's kind of mm. thing. So I was, I became deeply depressed. I, I don't know exactly. It was like not having money and not working in the same capacity yeah, that I have. Feeling powerlessness, right? I was so like. Out of your control. I was on the couch, like just sitting there. But what it taught me was like, one, there's nothing you can do about certain things. Like you, as much as you try to protect yourself from like hardship, it doesn't matter. Something like something as crazy as that can happen to show you that like you have to be at some point, you have to be vulnerable at some point. Like vulnerability Mm -hmm. is just a thing and good things can come out of it. I started to realize that like money wasn't that important because obviously I make any films like I'm not like out here trying to be a, you know rich or whatever like that's not my I'd love to be rich I love <laughs> universe I'd love to be rich but like I'm not out here like that's not my motivation being defined by like what you have and what you've done and what you're doing is not a good thing to do and just because I have made a movie every year for like five years it just had become part of my identity and we were supposed to make stephanie and i were supposed to make the shirley chisholm movie in march and it fell apart right and i'm like okay we're gonna make this movie i don't have to worry about that forty thousand dollars then the movie fell apart because like we couldn't get the timing right viola had to go back to the, and i was just like what is going on you know what i mean and like 
I couldn't get unemployment. It was like every single thing that could go wrong went wrong. And I think it was really like, I was so angry about the situation. I couldn't let go of the anger and I turned it inside. Like I was angry at myself for it happening. Mm. And then what do you do? You get depressed. I've read a good article that anger turned inward is depression. Mm-hmm. In my professional life, what it has also taught me is not to define myself by the things that I do. Like, I think I've also even realized that as much as I love producing, um, especially with my daughter, I, I have more time at home and stuff. You know what I mean? Like I did because I was like in the zone, in the depressed zone. But I was like, man, like what what would my life be like if I could slow it down? But yeah, I think that ha- like in general, the happiness is about learning from my mistake. You I know? love it. I yeah. love it. No, it's great. How do you think that one stays relevant in an industry that's constantly changing? That's a good question because that was one of the things that I was like also struggling with. Like, I think as long as you're happy with what you're doing, you'll keep doing it. Like people will be happy with working with you and you'll keep finding opportunities and stuff. Like being a part of a community is important. Like, you know, you need to have a community of friends and people who work in the industry because it is so much your life. So that part, like being relevant in your community and not like isolating yourself into Mm. oblivion is important. You probably notice, like I'm not like really a publicity like person. Like I don't have that stuff. I do think that like that stuff affects the bottom line though. I could make way more money if I tooted my horn. I I made like five films, you know what I mean? Most of which have gone to every festival, you know? And so like, I do know that in this second phase after my like uh, whole dramatic coogan account situation maybe i should you know think about how how do you craft that narrative and all those things in an authentic way that doesn't make you want to throw up in your mouth like i do (laughs) think that's important and like there's something to it but i also feel like you can only do it to the extent that you're going to be happy with yourself because i think there's relevancy in the now like um in the short term like and then there's relevancy in the long term Mm -hmm. and I think your community creates the relevancy that you'll have over the long term Mm. your community is what's going to sustain your relevancy over time amazing well we do have to wrap it up which I'm sad about because I like talking to you (laughs) I like talking to you too (laughs) but if someone wants to create a life or create a career path for themselves that mirrors yours in some way, right? It would never be identical. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the steps that they should be taking today to get there? I would say don't have an exit plan. Like don't go home Mm -hmm. because again, it's really, I, I just, I guess it all to me really goes back to your community. Like as you expand your community and Um, You continue to work, even if it's not exactly what you want to do, you'll find yourself being the only person left to do it at some point. I just had, unfortunately, went to a funeral for a a friend's wife from AFI. You know, we've been out of AFI for about 10 years now and um, everybody's there and everyone's like, it took 10 years, but now I'm doing X, Y and Z. But like if they gone home, you know, that wouldn't have been the story they would have been able to tell. So I think it's about trusting that what you have to say is valid and valuable. Um, What you have to contribute is real um, and is not defined by anyone else um, but yourself. And and sticking around, I think, is what I would say to do. Like, keep doing things. Yeah, I mean, they say it takes at least 10 years to make an overnight success. So I would agree. Stick with it. So thank you so much. Thank you. 
And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me week after week. I hope you have a good rest of your week. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, review, wherever it is you get your podcast. Tell a friend, tag a friend, and hit me up on the socials. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>